Welcome to the Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Dr. Samuel Lesgarten, and today I'm thrilled to have Drs. Jeff Naputi and Sarah Tilsey with us today. Dr. Naputi is a licensed senior staff psychologist, and Dr. Tilsey is a postdoctoral fellow, both of whom are at Colorado State University's Health Network and they work specifically around post-hospitalization support for students. Their program and team facilitates students' coping skills, processing of emotions, and overall support through exceptionally challenging scenarios. Jeff and Sarah, thank you so much for being with us today and welcome to the program. Thanks, Thanks Sam, it's so to good here. to be here. Yeah, absolutely. We're happy to have you, and, and I'm so glad that you can join us. You know, I want to talk to you a little bit about why it felt important to talk about this. You know, college mental health has been going through this massive revolution and change during this time. Um, we've been going through COVID, all of us as providers, over the last nine to 10 months. But I know as, as you're working with this college mental health population, it's been essential to, to try and transform your care to use telepsychology and to, to try and manage these increased caseloads that it seems like y'all are having and increasingly complex needs. And so for our listeners today, I'm, I'm hoping we might start our conversation pretty broad and get a better understanding of what this, this field or this area of college mental health includes. What is this? Well, some of it I think about maybe just a little history is even the change for how college mental health looks now versus even 20 years ago. Because the impression that I'd heard from folks who'd been in the field for a long time back in like the late 90s or early 2000s is that college mental health was often about, you know, one or two sessions doing uh, mild anxiety, mild depression. Um, and while that's definitely still the model in some places, it's really broadened across different universities as students are asking for more. And really the shift around stigma for mental health is changing in terms of, especially with new generations of students coming out, it's pretty common for them to be talking about different therapists they've already had before getting to college. And so that shift of the range of folks that we work with and the different types of concerns, which we'll talk about, I'm assuming in a little bit with who our team often serves. But when I think about kind of our jobs, what we often do is try and bring expertise of how do students be able to thrive in their lives in general within a school related context understanding there's certain unique elements of things like, um, for instance, if I, in our caseloads, there's going to be peak times in the semester, as we'll know, like in November or in uh, the end of the spring semester where lots of students will have higher stress, higher chance of going into a crisis. But there's other parts that are going to be consistent across different types of contexts that you'll work with, um, the therapists that we're all seeing. Um, so I think about our jobs is kind of this blend on one hand of helping them be able to succeed in their academic careers, as well as being able to flourish in terms of their mental health as well. Right, right. That, that facilitation of like their development and helping them transition, I'm guessing, to the coll collegiate experience, but also mm -hmm. concerns and things that come up during the experience to help them graduate too, help them get through that process successfully. You know, you, you talked about something important there, Jeff, around stigma and changing stigma and also um, a changing population that you're serving. So among this group of students, what are you seeing as some common presenting concerns? 
Yeah, I can talk about that a little bit. I think what Jeff said is so important around we have just seen such an increase in the utilization of our mental health services over the years. And it seems to just kind of keep increasing. And we've also seen an increase in the complexity and the severity of the issues that students are bringing in. And a lot of what we kind of attribute to that is around this new generation, Gen Z, seems to have less stigma about reaching out Mm -hmm. for mental health support. And there's so much out there encouraging students to come in for counseling. And it seems like that's allowing them this space to like really bring in these issues that they've been dealing with maybe more acutely or more long-term. And so, you know, I think we definitely see a lot of depression. We see a lot of anxiety. College is a time where students are really trying to figure out who they are and themselves. And so we of course see issues related to identity and a lot of identity-based trauma. And I think trauma is a big one too. We see folks coming in a lot who may have, experienced recent trauma like sexual assaults on campus is something that we Mm -hmm. see pretty frequently but then also more ongoing trauma we see a lot of students who come in and are talking about like their family of origin and this is the first time in their lives where they're like separate from this like family system that they grew up in and like reflecting on that and seeing all of these patterns and really trying to like make sense of these different environments and coming into their own so we see a lot of that And we see a lot of substance use and a lot of body image eating disorder behaviors arise as well. And and like Jeff was mentioning, some of the more complex mental health issues are arising a lot more in college counseling settings. So we are seeing an increase of like bipolar disorder, psychosis and personality disorders. And especially the work that Jeff and I do with some of our more high risk students, they really kind of embody those things. And it seems like that's really increasing as we like continue with college mental health. Right. And Sarah, I really appreciate you bringing up this piece about the diversity of presenting concerns. It's not just, as Jeff was saying, that the initial kind of depression and anxiety, there's, there's a lot more here. And it makes me really wonder, does this mean that you know, students are changing and we're having generational effects happening, like cohort effects where the concerns and the trauma is more severe than in previous generations. Why is it that we're beginning to see this? I can jump in on this one. I think the data from my understanding is a little mixed on it, but some of the things that stand out, like the good news is people are making it further than they have before. The fact that we're able to have these students in college is a sign of increased access. That's something that we're actually really glad about. Some of it's a medication issue. Some of it is about individualized education plans that are happening at earlier levels that allow students to reach this point. Because historically what had often happened is the barriers were just so strong that if someone had significant mental health concerns, it'd be really, really hard to get into and stay in college um, to even be able to see them show up at our doors in terms of working with them. The part that we don't know necessarily is some of the other cultural factors going on because there is some of the data about how the suicide rates in the U.S. have been going up Um, for the last roughly 20 years. It continues to increase. So there might be something there as well. Okay. Okay. You know, one of my fears is that because we're all living through this really consequential and unprecedented moment of COVID-19 and the pandemic, that it's disproportionately affected those who might need help most. And I'm thinking about, you know, how campuses are 
you know, helping those in need. And, and I'm thinking in particular, like BIPOC students who might be more vulnerable to some of these things that we're going through, having to leave campus, not necessarily having the resources and being strained both financially and geographically at times. And I'm, I'm curious how you've seen COVID affect students' mental health needs or the concerns you're working with. Yeah, I think about um, the complex overlap of lots of different types of systems and barriers that students are facing. Because when I think about BIPOC students in particular, there's this overlap of also the larger conversations around racial oppression that have been going up. And when there's not as much else in terms of taking the national um, media focus that have some of these really vicious and brutal videos of police violence being showed on replay on social media, wherever they go. And so this added level of stress in the middle of a national election as well, and that combination making it difficult. Um, some of the aspects of when students of color also face accesses in terms of uh, poverty as well. That's another part that makes it tricky because we've switched to near entirely remote services. And so if someone has a laptop, for some students, it works fairly smoothly. We've been surprised at how well that can go. Um, but for other folks, if they don't have a place to go, we're trying to troubleshoot and figure out how do we come up with some crafty strategies if they don't have a place that they can go in their home without someone overhearing, or if they don't have access to internet at home, or if they're, when it was warmer out, they could always just go like, and if they had cars, like go in their car and do it from their phone. Um, but having to figure out some of those aspects um, have been at least a few of the factors that have come up related to the pandemic times. Right. Yeah, that's really helpful. Really helpful. You know, as we're talking uh, a little bit more about what students are going through, I noticed we were talking about some of the more significant marked concerns as well, things like suicide and higher risk. And it, it brings us to, I think, one of the big reasons why I was fortunate and excited to have you all here today. And that's around working with those that are presenting with higher risk suicidal gestures and behaviors. I remember, you know, it's not that long ago, but I still remember those first few sessions with my first few clients and feeling, oh my gosh, this overwhelming anxiety. What happens if that was, I was doing a lot of what ifing. What happens if a client comes in, sits down, and based on their needs, I need to hospitalize them. This was such an anxiety provoking feeling to me. Now, as a team, as a part of your team at CSU, it seems like you provide services to students across a, a very diverse set of needs. And they may be in and out of hospitals for a variety of reasons. So I wanna know a little bit more about your team, what you do, what this I-team is, because I'm aware of the term, but I don't know what it stands for. So tell me a little bit about what this is. Yeah, I can take that one. The team that we have here is called the I-team and it stands for Intensive Treatment, Education, Assessment and Management. And to give a little bit of a history of I-team and kind of how it came to be, I-Team was really created in response to just seeing such an increase of suicidal behaviors, of deaths by suicide on our campus, and really noticing these trends increasing across the larger context of other universities across the country. And so at this time, our president of the university worked with our mental health team to develop a program that would work specifically to support students who are struggling with these really complex mental health issues with high-risk behaviors that do include suicide and self-harm, 
and may also include other things, including like homicidal behaviors, psychosis, and things that would really lead to hospitalization. And so in essence, that team became the I-team. And so to give kind of a shot of what we do now, we work as a team to serve students who are mandated for treatment by the university usually due to a recent mental health hospitalization. So the university becomes aware that a student was hospitalized for a psychiatric reason. And then we work with case management to kind of catch this student post-hospitalization and really do what we can to support them. And kind of the way that we do that, we use a DBT informed model. And so we do have those four components of DBT. We work with the student to provide individual therapy. We have them do a DBT skills group. We offer them phone coaching, and then we have a group DBT consult, which is kind of like our therapy for the therapist and like working with high-risk behaviors, like you were mentioning, Sam, like some of the anxiety that may come with that and how do we support each other and address those issues together. Yeah, Sarah, the last piece that you're talking about, I kind of want to zoom in on that, that idea that, you know, you get to work together as a team and maybe part of the, the four distinct areas is having some space to, to collaborate and consult with each other. That seems immensely important. And it makes me wonder about your own kind of self-care and burnout when you're working with students with this level of need. I appreciate what you're saying, Sam, because I think that's a big part for me. Like, how do we do this work and not focus on it just at the immediate crisis, but what does a sustainable career look like? Um, Because it was really daunting to me in terms of when I first jumped into this role, they had a previous iteration of the team and the original members were there for about three years um, before they switched to different roles because it was a really demanding job. And so some of what happened when I came on is the the whole university, um, like the counseling center worked really hard to help build a structure that would support us ongoing, not just at an individual difficult moment. And I think about burnout is not something to just pretend won't happen, but rather assume it's going to happen. And my frame is less of a dichotomous on off with burnout, but more of it's something, a space that we enter and depart on a regular basis that I'm noticing as it gets deeper or harder in points of the semester or when difficult things happen, and then figuring out what to do to take care of ourselves and bounce back. And like Sarah alluded to, one of those things is making sure that every week we have a defined consultation meeting where we get the chance to talk both personally and professionally and as part of that burn, that meeting, we actually rate our levels of burnout on personal and professional wow. burnout to check in, just see where are we at, because it gives us that gauge and noticing sometimes it's an indicator of like one person's having a lot going on in their personal life and that's impacting work and we can slide resources around them and take on things to support each other. Or other times it's a sign there's something larger systemically we need to do if everyone's numbers and burnout is going up with different kinds of interventions. Um, When we're in person, there's a lot of extra things that we've done in the design of our team as well, just literally our physical space, our offices are side by side. Um, So we have this capability to grab each other in between sessions if something ever comes up. In the virtual world, we do like all sorts of different communication methods of texting and chatting and um, everything in between to have that regular contact because this is the kind of work um, drawing from a lot of Marshall Linehan's recommendations that cannot be done alone. It's really hard to do this kind of work without a team around you because I'm going to have times where I get burnt out. I'm going to be pushed. I'm going to get worn down. And a metaphor that comes into my mind sometimes is it's our role in these situations to be able to enter this cave of hopelessness with our clients 
and have a skill set to help climb out and teach them how to climb out as well. But it means entering in that cave with them and sitting in there and really feeling some of that hopelessness. Otherwise, we can't get it well enough to do something about it. But when you sit with someone with hopelessness for long enough, it's contagious. It will catch you at some point. So I think less about how do I not burn out and more of like, what are the signs that my burnout is getting worse? And how do I come back? So it's more of a flexible in and out. So I don't know if that's similar or different, Sarah, to things you think about or. Absolutely. I feel like it's kind of an inherent component and like product of doing this work is like, it's, it is really hard and challenging work. And at the same time, it's incredibly rewarding, but I think we do lean into the fact that we probably are going to feel burnt out. And I know that our consult times makes me feel like I can like monitor that and check in on myself of like, where am I with this? And then like having a space to have others hold that and share that and talk about like our personal and professional burnout as a team, as a whole, and like where everybody is has helped me so much in monitoring my own and then also managing it and kind of both problem solving, like, what do we need to do about this? How can we address this systemically? And also just sitting with the emotion of it (laughs) as a team. Right, right. Yeah, I think in, in hearing you both talk, I'm just hearing how normalizing it is like that burnout will happen and that it sounds like y'all have a, a great deal of communication across across disciplines and also with each other um, about what's coming up for you, which is really wonderful. You know, Jeff, there was something you were saying earlier about how it, it seemed like it, it came from on high, you know, from the president down, the creation of this team. And, and there's a great deal of history here, but I'm, I'm kind of curious for either of you, what you know about what other colleges and universities tend to do with students that are struggling in this way. So there's kind of a range of different responses that other universities do that run the gamut from kind of more responsive and less responsive. The model historically for a lot of universities had been they could actually unenroll a student and be able to physically take them well, to logistically remove them from classes until the student was some degree of better. It was very roughly defined of what that meant. It causes a lot of problems in terms of the Americans with Disabilities Act of in essence restricting access potentially based on someone's disability. And it gets to that point that we were alluding to earlier as well about um, it's putting barriers in the way of a student to be able to have access and different people have different needs of what and work of what it's gonna take to be in college. Some universities end up somewhere in the middle where they kind of just don't give much response at all. So they're not going to actively block students, but they don't have a lot of resources to support them. And especially I think the smaller the university is, the harder it is to come up with resources if you're going to specifically tailor to this population, because these are folks who need a lot of resources. Um, And that was another part of the design of this team is the idea that in almost any clinic, there's going to be a small percentage of clients who who take up a high percentage of the care And we can either kind of have them show up to emergency resources and simply catch them whenever they show up, or we can have a very intentional uh, solution that brings them to the core of what we're doing. And our model is to try and bring them closer. So if they wish to stay in school, we're gonna wrap them in with as many resources as we can. And so they have that direct contact. We have folks who understand the university. We can talk through all sorts of different logistical loopholes of what are the different paths available to them and really pull them closer. So it's less of a go heal on your own and come back when you're some idea of well and more of healing as a journey that we can help you work on. And being a student for some folks is part of that. 
Um, I was having a conversation with someone earlier today about how being in school in itself is part of the healing for some folks. If they are a trans student, for instance, and going back to a family who is not gender affirmative, it could be far worse for them to leave. And so being able to right. stay in school and receive that care is life-saving for a lot of the folks that we're working with. One of the things I'm left curious to know more about is what happens when a student comes to you and says they feel like they need to take a leave of absence or, or have some sort of time away from classes in a reduced or a removal. How do you navigate these, these medical waivers and leaves of absence? Well, I think that actually brings up an important point about how iTeam wouldn't function if we weren't embedded within the university context. I think even if we had all of the same clinical skills, if we weren't interacting with some of the other university offices, it just wouldn't work in a college setting. So one of the pieces right off the bat actually is we don't even have to have some of that conversation because our case managers um, who are not part of the counseling center, they're actually part of the universities. They will go in the, before the days of COVID, they actually went to the local inpatient facility. So they would meet with the students before they even discharged to talk through some of the options. And the nice thing is there's a whole continuum of choices of what people can do. For some folks, the first thing is encouraging them to just wait for a little bit and see how it feels first before making a decision because in very DBT format, we wanna be cautious to on one hand, neither treat them like they're fragile nor ask far too much beyond their current capability. But for some of them, they're totally fine once they've had the chance to reacclimate to their lives and go right back in. For other folks, we're already talking about how do they do drop a few classes or maybe try it out and see and then drop classes and then drop a few more. The nice thing, at least for our model, is as long as they're taking one credit, they're still eligible for our services. And so that's the other part that keeps them eligible and we'll kind of work some of those loopholes or it depends on the time of the semester, which is the other reason we developed it. Because historically in college counseling, what happens is that people will show up in crisis at very distinct points, late near the end of the semester when stress builds up. And so if someone's near the end of the semester, if they're completely bombing out and they have the chance where they have fantastic treatment resources in their home community, supportive parents, financial means, we might coach them on like, yeah, go ahead and take some time off and come back. But if it's someone who doesn't have financial means or they don't have parents or they don't have um, a supportive community to go back to, we may coach them on the reverse of sticking it out till the end of the semester to work with us. And there's other things of like retroactive withdrawals so they can basically have their grades turned into something that doesn't impact their GPA. And so it's definitely, I think a part of it is that we're within an academic context and knowing some of those options. I've seen it make a humongous difference of having the mental energy if someone's able to take fewer classes or time off um, the last pieces I would say for our university, and they're called by different names, but our, our office is the Resources for Disabled Students. We work really regularly with them as well. And so being able to talk through what are some of the psychological impairments that the student is facing can also help them out with resources. For instance, if the person's facing dissociation, obviously they're going to have memory impairment and that can make it really hard if it's a traditional instruction class where they have to show up to a lecture in person and remember everything that happened, but they're doing exposure exercises in their therapy. And so they're dissociating a little bit still. Um, so being able to have those interactions with both the case management office, with the resources for disabled students, and then I think about just knowing the continuum and the longer we're at CSU as clinicians, the more we learn some of those ins and outs. Mm, that's huge. That's, that's huge. And, and I want to recognize that what y'all are doing sounds really unique. You know, as you describe that spectrum of services that are made available to students and colleges and universities, y'all seem to be trying to pioneer a, a new way of, 
of handling, you know, the needs that are coming in and, and trying to be as, as humane as possible, it seems like too. Now, this wouldn't be the clinical consult if we didn't dig into some of the clinical skills and things that go into the work that you do. I am super, super curious to hear a little bit more about what the treatment process and interventions look like. So tell me, you know, what does this look like? I mean, if I were sitting across from one of you, where do we begin? What happens? Yeah, I can speak to that a little bit. So as we mentioned, typically students come to us on the I-team right after they've gotten out of the hospital for a mental health reason. And we typically, in terms of like the mandate process, we typically have about 12 weeks with them on average. And so a metaphor that a lot of DBT informed clinicians use that I really love in kind of talking about the process and the timeline of treatment is this notion of the DBT house. And so we typically start at this like phase one, which might be like the basement of the house. And that's kind of um, where the crisis is, where the fire is. And so our phase one of treatment is really focused on um, stabilization and how do we get in control of behaviors that are life-threatening, of threats to engaging in treatment and having treatment be helpful to these students um, and any major threats with like quality of life interfering behaviors as well. And so those are our like primary targets in this like hierarchy that we work with from a DBT informed model of how do we really make sure that this person has become stabilized. And then as treatment progresses, we kind of move into other phases. So in the house, it may be like the next level, maybe it's the first story of the house. So talking more about like emotional experiencing and how do we get in touch with working towards like cognitive restructuring, maybe treating pieces of like PTSD or other mental health issues that are coming up that might be really affecting those crisis levels, Um, like what's underlying the crisis and how do we kind of address that so that we don't return to a stage of crisis. Um, And then kind of that next level is how do we achieve this sense of like ordinary happiness and what does unhappiness mean to us and how do we identify our life goals and work towards our life goals, increase our self-respect, kind of those pieces. Um, And then that final stage would be, how do we sustain that happiness? How do we sustain that joy? So thinking about um, like expanded awareness, um, peak experiences, spiritual fulfillment, kind of all of those pieces. And it's, it's interesting with the population that we work with is we might not be able, I would love to be able to do all those pieces with every student who we right. see. And in a time limited model, sometimes it's, it's just crisis. And we, we work with that person to manage those crisis scenarios. And so we kind of get to do a a flexible model of like, how much time do we have with them? What feels the most important? How do we follow that hierarchy to make sure that we're best serving that student? Right. And, and Sarah, if I just can paraphrase to make sure I'm following you, it sounds like we got to put out the fire. We got to get the extinguisher out first. And then we kind of move along by beginning to process what's behind the scenes here. It might be trauma, it might be some other things in their life. And then we can move to more of these like aspirational things, whether it be goals, but also thinking about reasons for living and meaning in life. Am I hearing you correctly? Absolutely, yes, that feels like a great summary. Okay, all right. Well, given that we've been talking a little bit about being DBT informed, what does that look like? You know, help me understand that. I am not a DBT provider. While I've been exposed to some of the language and have a, a, a kind of an understanding of what's there, what, what would it look like if I were there working with y'all? 
One thing that we wanted to clarify, the reason we use the term DBT informed, it may, that term may not mean a whole lot unless someone is what we would say is adherent DBT. Um, part of that is out of respect for Marsha Linehan and behavioral tech and all the work that they have done to create this treatment. Some of the research where the biggest bulk of the research is about adherent DBT models. And so those models involve six months to a year of treatment. They have clients who are attending a, a group two hours every week. They have all the other parts that we talked about in terms of a consultation group, they're doing individual therapy, that structure. So we borrow some of those similar elements, but in our time-limited model, some of those pieces we can't access in the same way. So we wanted to make sure that we, we honor the heritage that we come from and the philosophy and tenets, but be clear that, that we're not, that we don't follow the full model, which also for some folks gives hope if it is something where our program is still not enough for them, there can be additional layers of treatment of where they can go in afterwards or instead if it feels like having a DBT adherent model would help Alex. But some of the components that we do borrow from, and I'll try and walk kind of back and forth from DBT language and maybe less jargon ways of describing them, is in our individual sessions compared to other types of therapy modalities out there, it's a fairly structured session with a rough idea of an agenda every single session of what we do. So most sessions will involve with um, starting off by actually little chit chat as we're wandering in. We review, they have a skills tracking card. And so we're having them fill out every day something that they bring, they then bring in and we review the week's worth around thoughts of suicide, self-harm behaviors, emotions they notice, some other factors of like sleep, medication usage, as well as different skills they utilized. And based on that, we try and set a session agenda. And then you typically, since most of our folks are in the crisis stabilization part, when they enter work with us, we're picking what are the top targets based on the hierarchy Sarah alluded to, kind of which fire do we put out first. And then from there, we zoom more in depth with the chain analysis. And what that's doing is taking a step-by-step -step look where we're really zooming in, almost like we're looking at a movie and we're pausing it and going frame by frame on the remote just to watch what happens. What are we noticing? Because part of what happens with our folks is it's so overwhelming for them, they can't even really describe it. So the first few chain analyses we might do are fairly vague and fairly open. And so the first skill we're even doing is getting good strategies to remember what happened, to figure out what was effective and what might not have been to shift in the future. The nice thing is most of our folks across a handful of sessions, they start getting acquainted to it. And actually they find it pretty calming. There's this container to it um, because we, another part of DBT that I really love is how it does have this blend of both behavioral philosophies that are, that structure is important, change skills are important, as well as more acceptance and validation strategies. One of the things that Marsha was fantastic about was really understanding the role of validation and how critical that is for, um, for individuals struggling with high-risk behaviors, especially folks, for instance, with borderline personality disorder. Validation is critical, critical, critical. So that's a big piece of what we're doing is giving room both to process some of the emotions while also making sure we're keeping our eye focused on the top targets so we can make sure to put out the biggest fire first and then sequence it so we get back to some of those later on. And then in the group setup of what kind of it looks like, that part is more didactic focused. So compared to other groups where it's more process oriented, this one feels almost like a therapy skills class is the way that Sarah and I often market it to our students. And so we're talking about some of the different DBT related strategies. There's homework assignments, and it's less about processing specific elements of their week or parts of their past. They do talk some about it, but it's more about learning skills, practicing skills, getting feedback on it to bring that out into their life outside of therapy. You know, something that you both talked about, I think a little bit earlier was around phone coaching. And 
I remember being in my training program and the phones were like off limits. You are not to be texting clients. You shouldn't even be emailing clients because it's outside of our medical record, at least at the time. That's how it was. And, and there was so much that, you know, was anti the communication continuing outside of the therapy environment. And now here we are in telepsychology land where nothing gets done unless it's online or on the phone or on a computer. And I'm, I'm curious what phone coaching looks like. So in terms of phone coaching, one thing I think that may be helpful to start off with is to give a frame of frequency, because that's one to me, it was like super intimidating when I think about the DBT model. And for a lot of folks, one of the biggest things when they say why they would just never be able to fully take on this model phone coaching is a big component of that. The idea of being available to your clients 24 seven sounds pretty daunting. And a lot of folks are picturing just like every single night, they're getting woken up by calls and there's no chance to have a separation from work and life. So in terms of some background on that, in some of the studies, when they've looked at it with DBT and phone coaching, the average is typically about one to maybe two calls per week is about all we're talking about. And they're not a full therapy session. They're very much structured and scripted to be brief on purpose. They're ideally, if they're doing a phone call, it's 10 to 15 minutes. And so the goal is more about interrupting if there's current urges for strong behaviors coming up. So if someone's having thoughts of suicide, if they're engaging, about to engage in a self-harm behavior, we're catching it and interrupting it before. And that speeds up the process of treatment. Because in a lot of ways, in essence, we're not waiting to talk about it next week. We're catching it in the moment. And I've actually found it super relieving because I've had a number of times that if I wasn't able to talk to a client for a whole nother week, I would have to be so much more thorough on my safety plan and a lot more worried. But it's been really relieving for me because a lot of times I can have a good enough safety plan and then plan a check-in later over the weekend, or I can know that they'll reach out to me because we have that relationship built. And we're very intentional and structured with it when we start to clarify what it is and what it's not for, to make sure the limits are both clear to the clients and protect the therapist. But the other part about it is we want to make sure we're not too rigid because some of what we're inherently coaching is how to manage relationships. Because I think about with our friendships, like if you had a friend who is struggling and if they had a divorce or a breakup, I don't think I would have limits to my friend of like, I'll only talk to you between 5 p.m. and 10 p.m. and I'll only talk for 10 minutes. It'd be kind of ridiculous for that. But right. if my friend was calling me every night at midnight and I couldn't sleep to then go to work, we'd talk about it. If my friend went, disappeared off the map and I found out they were really struggling and been to the hospital, I'd probably ask him like, hey, what's going on that you didn't reach out to me? And so we do similar with phone coaching around that. So then the clients are clear, it's not therapy. 10 to 15 minutes, we're focused on a brief explanation of what's the problem that's come up? What have you tried so far? And what are a few solutions that we can suggest in the moments? And I don't know the data on this, but my hunch is a good percentage of it, honestly, is just having that human contact with someone who knows your story, the difference between calling a crisis line where you have a person you have to kind of educate on your whole life and your whole background and what works, what doesn't, it can be super fast. I can crack a joke with my person. I know when to push, when not to push. Sometimes I can use some of the metaphors and references from my therapy work. And it's a heck of a lot faster than when I just go in and cold with someone I've never met when I do on call that way. 
And I think, you know, in the six, I guess it's been like four or five years I've been doing phone coaching. I've only had maybe twice that I've ever had to have more clear limits with clients where I've had them do something even more structured about having to fill out a worksheet before they call me because the fact they kept calling and they weren't using skills before they called or they were calling multiple times a night. It's honestly been pretty rare. The problem I usually run into is actually I have to work to get clients to call me. They're really ashamed. They're embarrassed. They don't want to overwhelm me. And so my spiel is typically something to the effect of, I want to tell you two things. On one hand, I would much rather be woken in the middle of the night than find out you're back in the hospital, you attempted suicide, or that you died. And on the other hand, I'm going to be a terrible therapist and a terrible human being if you wake me up every night at 2 a.m. So we have to find a balance with that. Uh And if if something gets there, I'll tell you, because we also don't want to have this mind reading approach. We want to model what we're trying to teach this DBT as a philosophy of life. It's my job to articulate what are my limits and it might be different from Sarah's limits or other people's limits. So I have to tell them, here's what I'm okay with, here's what I'm not okay with and reinforce it if it does come off of their brushing up against those. Wow, well, thank you for breaking it down too. Because when we first kind of look at that title of phone coaching, I, I know for, for me, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, what are the limits and how available do I need to be? Do I ever get to go on vacation and just like turn off my phone? You know, what, what happens? And I really appreciate you kind of going through what some of the limits and boundaries would be and the fact that that might be a, an important part of the treatment process itself. Jeff, Sarah, I am so thankful that you came on the program today and shared your expertise with us. Seriously, I'm going to be borrowing some of these skills later today. So thank you so much. I am thrilled to learn specifically about your I-team at Colorado State University, but even more these, these clinical skills that you're able to implement every day. And it kind of inspires me to think about what I might be able to do with my clients moving forward. So thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks for having us. I'm glad to be here. It's fun to talk about this. I always, uh, our model that my boss is very clear about is it's a good idea that people like, she wants us to spread it as far and wide as possible. And hopefully it might take root and sprout in other places. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Sam. It's been fun to talk about. And, you know, it's something that Jeff and I are both really passionate about and love talking about. So it's both fun to talk with you and, and to think about sharing our information with other folks as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Before we go, I want to give a shout out to all doctoral students, postdoctoral trainees, and early career psychologists. The National Register is offering a full credentialing scholarship to help you bank hours, access the Journal of Health Service Psychology, and a wealth of training programs. Applications are due April 15, and you can apply on nationalregister.org. I'm Dr. Samuel Lustgarten, and this has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continuing education. 